coming up on this episode of the MD and Chef Team Show. The opposite of that is a permanent ongoing um, relationship between health practitioners and other people and yourself and data and ownership of everything where it's not episodic. It's based on, you know, it's how you live. Mm -hmm. And it's also in the staying well space, not being sick space, you know, so it's a wellness system, Mm -hmm. not a healthcare model. Welcome to the show from the The MD MD and Chef team. team. I'm Dr. Isabel, medical doctor here at the MD and Chef team. And who are you? I'm Chef Michael, culinary nutrition expert. I'm the chef part of the team. And what are we going to talk about, babe? Now, I can say that because he's my husband. (laughs) Yes. Well, then we'll be talking about marriage, relationships, parenting, intimacy. We'll talk about mindsets of success, overcoming depression, anxiety. I'll be getting into functional nutrition, recipes and tips from the kitchen. And we're going to both get into how to live a long, healthy, vibrant life. Yes, I love it. Our mission is to help you prevent and reverse disease and give you hope in the process. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. we, we like, like to have, have fun, fun too. <laughs> so let's, let's get, get on, on with the show. Hi, Mel. How are you doing? Isabel Kiora, lovely to see you virtually. How are yeah, you? Very good. So cold. I'm I'm in the oh, you know, I'm in yeah. Hawks Bay and you're where are you now? Northland. Well, we're actually Kaipara, but it was eight degrees this morning. Yeah. Oh, we're talking New Zealand, everybody. We're all talking New Zealand. It's winter down here. I'm so ready for spring. Me too. This In Northland, of course, by this time, the sun has come out. So it's warm in the middle of the day. Yes. Um, but the winter was, I mean, weekend was cats raining, cats and dogs, howling gales, you know, proper rain. So, yeah, we'll just have to hang out for a few months. Yes. But isn't it great to see the buds coming out on the trees? We're already starting to talk about whether our, one of our cows, we have two cows, one of them might be in calf. So we're not quite sure. It would be sort of late August, early September, but she doesn't show. She's she's a Frisian, so she doesn't show well. <laughs> and when do they when do they give birth? October-ish, October, November. Oh good. It's so sad to see the little baby lambs being born so early in the in the winter when it's like like last night, wasn't it freezing? Absolutely. Yeah. And it does. Yeah. We um, in general practice yesterday and it's a kind of sad, happy, sad story. But one of our receptionists was being really happy on the phone to a patient. She was like, I'm so happy to hear that. And I said to her, you know, who was that? She said, oh, it's a patient we've had for many, many years. She said she's just she's been living in her car for six years and she has just got a house. Oh, wow, Mel. Well, look, I I love that you just shared that story. And how about if we introduce you to the listeners? Because yeah. we've got everybody listening here at yeah, Dr. Well, Adam. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'd like to introduce to you everybody Mel Jure, and she's in northern, the north part of New Zealand, and and she's going to go ahead and tell a little bit about her story, and then I'll just kind of start talking to her, and I, we're going to just share the big vision about healthcare. Okay, so tell me a little bit about your story. 
I will do, Isabel. Um, great pleasure to meet you and all your listeners. Of course, we've already got to know each other. Yes. Um, <laughs> so um, I'm definitely a global citizen. Uh, grew up in Namibia in a town called Swakopmund, which is actually ger- was German Southwest Africa at the time. So in the middle of a desert, some, one of the oldest deserts of the world, it lies a little German town with German architecture and cafe and kuchen and um, beer tents. <laughs> I know it's amazing and a beautiful coastline so I had a very free childhood running around with dogs on the beach no tv no computers in those days um Africa you know you, you you're barefoot and in the sunshine it was a lovely way to grow up and are there um, giraffes and elephants all over the absolutely. place absolutely so the deserty <laughs> bit is desert and then you go into where there are all those game parks and a lot of conservation with um, Namibia is alongside Botswana, so they're particularly good at game conservation. Wow. Lions, uh, elephants, hippopotamuses. My mum actually works in the game park industry and even in her 70s would get on a four-wheel drive and bugger off into the middle of nowhere on a, you know, dirt road. Wow. <laughs> I love it. I love that. <laughs> so great childhood and then um, – studied fine art in South Africa at, at the University of Cape Town at a place called Michaela School of Art in a time when Nelson Mandela was in prison and South Africa was an apartheid torn, you know, war-torn country. Um, I got involved in anti-apartheid politics and, you know, that's a whole other story, was an activist, was one of the lefty female activists, you know, whitey activists in the 80s, and then went to England um, in the Thatcher days. And in England started just, you know, how these things are, because you have some of this in your life too. <laughs> met, met, met my husband and between us, uh, we, plus a Kiwi guy, started a software business, a CRM company, Customer Relationship Management, which was like nobody knew what that was then. Back in the 80s? <laughs> in the 90s, early 90s. Yeah. So, yeah. So did, you know, kind of, and you know, again, parallels for us, um, pioneers, Sometimes they say pioneers die with arrows in their backs because you're so far ahead of everybody else. Oh, girl, I hear you. I hear you. Right? So it's not that easy. You're making a market. Nobody knows what the hell it is. (laughs) But it was was fun. Um, And I got the opportunity through that to start working in consultancy around customer relationship management and then moved into the health and social care um, sector through the e-government initiative in the UK, which was, um, you know, coming about and the government at the time was being quite forward thinking, actually, and we'll talk about some of that. Um, That's a good 20 years ago. So things have changed. um, But that was what brought me together with technology, the health uh, sector and um, health and social care, really, people, process and technology, as well as the um, consultancy side. And, you know, here I still am, although... um, in New Zealand, not in England anymore. With your husband? With my husband and my children have all grown and gone away. You know, they they came with us. And we have a son in London still in his 30s and then two more here in the U- in New Zealand, but they've done their unis and getting on with their lives. So that's, you know, amazing. I Yes. And so now you and I are in our different, our next stage of life, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and yeah. I don't know about you, but I still want to help heal the world. Well, I'm glad you got the energy for it, Isabel. <laughs> I do. Until my last breath. Until my last breath. I just, I, it, you'll never be able to shake it out of me. There's just so much. 
that needs yeah. to happen. But yeah. yeah. So you came to New Zealand and now you are a project manager. Well, um, I was, so my career when I moved into health and social care has been kind of project and change management all along. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the last two years, I actually picked up an operational management role of two medical centers. So I managed two medical centers, lock, stock and barrel, staff, profit and loss, everything clinical quality, patient incidents, blah, blah, blah. So I'm kind of in your world, really, or the world that you might have left behind, right, because you're not exactly in that kind of GP clinic face-to-face world. So I manage two medical centres, 12,000 patients and 30 staff. (laughs) Um, And I also, because I've done so many years of change and improvement, because I also still have the energy to change the world, um, three or four years ago... Three or four years ago, I worked with a wonderful woman called Jo Henson, and um, Jo and I worked on uh, changing general practice, and we can talk a bit about that, you know, in a yes. bit. Yes, um, we worked, Jo's got extreme, a huge amount of experience, but we worked with 12 general practices across Northland uh, to deliver an integrated, more proactive, more technology-savvy general practice offering. Um, and so when I took up my operational role, I kind of missed that um, transformational side of it, but I also just miss Joe. And Joe and I can talk. We can talk the hind leg off a donkey. So we're like easy. Let's just do a podcast. <laughs> and hence the you reason know. for hence the for change for jam. Change jam. Yeah, right, exactly. You know, and also based on a principle that I'm now in this place where I know so much as the truth of it, and as as I'm sure you do, I have such a full kit bag that I'm actually quite keen to share it and share it for nothing. And that's in some ways what podcasting is about and and social media is just giving away, right? That is actually what we do with Change Jam. Talk through all sorts of pithy problems or and or opportunities in life because we're all at that age where we actually can draw on lots of experience and hopefully help other people, you know? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And when that's what I love about what we're doing. And so talk up, let's talk about transformational healthcare change. Because uh-huh. when yeah. when when I had sent you a message on, hey, would you come and, and do a pod, you know, be with the uh, MD and Chef team podcast? And I said, would you just share with us what you see as the best best system? for healthcare. Currently, like what just just expand. Just now you you've got a huge table. We're not on any time restraint. What do you see? What's your vision? Well you know, um I mean there's so much to say here and one can also talk about how to get there, you know, but I think let's just start with real visioning. I actually listened a couple of years ago to a King's Fund podcast about what might the future of healthcare look like. And yes. King's, King's Fund in the UK had actually taken, um, they'd done some research, they'd done some think tank work with a group of people in London. And what, what they'd said to them was, don't dream up stuff that doesn't exist. Think of what you know now and future projected by about 20 years, you know, like go ahead. And what they talked about was sort of um Mind-blowing and scary at the same time, but let's just go there, right? <laughs> let's let's just let's go just there. go there. So what they talked about was that um, there is an internet of things growing, 
And for our listeners who maybe don't know what that means, um, you can use the internet and you can use small devices in lots of ways these days. We have Alexa, we have lights that switch off and on, we can switch our fridge on, we can measure how much water is in our water tank. I actually have a robot and I've got a little app, I've got a robot vacuum cleaner, it's brilliant. (laughs) So the internet of things is a growing thing, right? And whether you like it or not, your life is going to have all these devices around you. So that's one thing. The other thing to think about is the growth of uh, Fitbits and technology on your wrist, which measures your heart rate and knows your calorie output and maybe can help you with macros and knows how you sleep. And there's a whole wealth of material around mindfulness stuff and Uh uh, mental health. So, So the technology... It, if you forward that by 20 years is amazing. Wow. Okay. So there's a possibility that all of this could be used to give you ownership and understanding and control of what's going on in your body. And you might go as far as saying there might be um, artificial intelligence or smart big data looking at your uh, um, vitals versus your genetic disease comparisons, you know, so there's also the ability to take readership from you and map it against data from the world. I hope I'm not losing people, but this is like a, so it's going to be, there's a possibility that when you open your fridge for your fourth gin and tonic, the fridge might say, you know, this is not a good idea. Wow. That would be a really good idea after the second, (laughs) after the second one. Yeah, right. You know, so on the other hand, I hope that I'm still in a position to make decisions and mistakes for myself. Right. But there's a, there's firstly all this information and all this measuring of information. The second thing is that what that means for healthcare, which I think is fascinating, is that if you look at healthcare today and you know terribly well, it's even for a GP episodic, right? People, people come to you when things have gone wrong. Yes. Right? Then yes. You, they look for you to fix them or give it a name or mask it. They don't, right? And they, you do that. And then they go away. And then when things go wrong, maybe a bit more, <laughs> they come back. Yes. I go, oh, just fix it or mask it. So that's the opposite of that is a permanent ongoing um, relationship between health practitioners and other people and yourself and data and ownership of everything where it's not episodic it's based on you know it's how you live Mm -hmm. and it's also in the staying well space not being sick space you know so it's a wellness system Mm -hmm. not a healthcare model healthcare disease management which is what we've got we don't we don't have I always say we don't have healthcare we've got disease management that's right that's right yeah it's a sickness system yeah, it's a sickness system. And I love, and that's what I'm doing for the rest of my life, is just teaching people how to be the CEO of their health. And that includes their brain. And that's exactly what we're talking about, is teaching people, you have got the power, you just know, you just need to be taught what to do, because you've never been taught what to do. And also, yeah, there's just so much that people don't realize that they're being tricked into thinking they don't have any power this is just the way it is and that's so interesting because you know what it also makes me think is um, these days if you look at particularly younger generations they can access any information and they do right they're highly clued up because they can just do it and the healthcare industry is still based on the fact or this premise that patients are stupid and doctors are very very clever 
And so doctors don't give you, <laughs> you know, they don't tell you. I'm not a doctor. I want to know, and I want to know what I can do about it, you know, and I want access to resources, and I want access to um, tools and techniques, and I can help myself, thanks very much, rather than I'm me. <laughs> And and the way that the the way that uh, the GP services are is doctors don't have time. No, that's exactly we're, right. You know, we're under such a time crunch. You know that you're in that yeah, space. Yeah, yeah, yeah you see yes. what doctors have to see. So I think that that is we because we've talked a bit about this really amazing vision out there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if we look at what's going on today, and we can talk about that in the New Zealand context, but the UK is not much different, possibly worse is that the health system has not had financial investment for a very long time, 20 years. There was an article in the New Zealand um, doctor quite recently which broke down the economies of the new budget um, you know, uh, um, figures. And what they said, just, you know, and I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And I've not been in New Zealand since, you know, that long. They said from, firstly, if you go back to the year 2000, and you look at the rate of investment based on population. So, you know, you and I both know you can look at a, a, a first of all, index of that. Mm-hmm. New Zealand was already low. It was lowish, right, in 2000, if you looked at it as a rate. And then from 2000 to 2017, no, not even an inflationary increase, no increase was made to primary care, nothing, zero. So it's gone backwards for 20 years, right, started low. In the meantime, you know this from a system point of view, older people, long-term conditions, inequities with Maori health, diabetes, cardiovascular, it's huge, right, huge. And secondary care has got harder and harder and harder to get to. So more and more and more complexity sits in primary care. It becomes a high utilising chronic conditions system. We see it all the time. Mm-hmm. And the money you're given is for 15-minute consultations by GPs, not even by nurses or social workers or healthcare assistants or dietitians, by GPs. Yes. All they do is prescribe. That's all they've got time for. They don't have time to do anything else. And I know what you're, what you're saying is right, so I think it's important not to kind of um, denigrate an entire profession because I know lots of GPs who do an incredible job who really, really care. But it is the system is, for starters, a ambulance at the bottom of the cliff system. The funding is for an old-fashioned model. Mm-hmm. It doesn't think it says nothing, health and social care, about it. And it would not only need funding, you know, for a more preventative, more holistic, more multidisciplinary team investment, but it would need pump priming to become prevention, not cut your leg right. off because you've had diabetes, right? Which right. is kind of what's going on right now. So you would need pump priming. You'd need two, two amounts of money. Right, right. So like, how would you, I've always, I can't figure out how this is going to happen, but how do you get people invested in their health? You know, how do you get people to to want to take better care of themselves? I just, like the population you know, that um, I work with. Yeah. Go on. Yeah, the population I, I work with online, they, you know, that's what they want. But in healthcare, like how do you, people that are going to the GPs, how do you motivate people to well, take care of themselves? The, uh, you know, I think there's motivation and also um, environment. 
Um, and it's a hugely complex discussion is because there is the inequities as you get into poverty and all the determined social determinants of health. I mean, you know this stuff, right? But mm-hmm. if, and let's just stick to the diabetes side of things and food just for a minute. Oh, we yeah. Have a health, yeah, we have a health coach who's a dietitian in our practice. She's amazing. You would love her. She loves the reversing diabetes words. Thanks very much. She's like, yes. Anyway, she <laughs> came into our practice the other day and she was looking very miserable. She's like, I said, what is it? And she went, oh, I just feel like I've just sometimes I'm up against this massive battle. And I said, what is it? She said, they've just opened up another pizza shop 10 minutes outside of the school. And in the afternoon before three, those pizzas are a dollar. She said they are teaching an addiction. Oh, yeah. She said, I will have lost those kids. By the time they get to me and they're 20-something, forget it. It's past. So it's serious. You know, there is a massive um, industry out there that sells fast-burning carbohydrates dead cheap. And that messes your body up. Oh, yeah. You know, and then how? that's not about motivation. That's about addiction. Exactly. So there's a big societal component to play. Then there's all the poverty stuff laid over it. If that's all you can afford and it's the nearest thing to you and you're living in your car, let's say, blah, 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 right? Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's the food side of it. So I think when you're talking about people who have got other things going on in their lives or other disadvantages or other massive challenges, you need to help them with the massive challenges first. Uh uh And those people may well get through those challenges and go, that's amazing. I'm now ready to work on this. And we do have those patients and they do an incredible, that's amazing. Well, you know, how, wow. Then there's maybe affluent people who have got lovely lives who can be precious enough not to care about their health. And in a way I'm almost, you know, and some of them are motivated enough to listen to people like you or and or get up and want to live their best lives, you know. And sometimes in life it takes a big wake-up call, doesn't it? You know, oh, yeah. Something well, actually, has to happen. unfortunately, that's usually how we learn best. We kind of like land on our face and go, okay, there's no other place to go. You can't go down any further. So now it's time, you know. And that's normally when you've been diagnosed with a, with type two diabetes or a heart attack or a stroke. And, and I'm just like, well, you and I both know we're like, don't go there. It's really ugly, but unfortunately that's human nature. And that's where we learn the best. That's where I learned my best lesson. <laughs> but you know what I'm um, talking about sort of just, you know, saying to people don't go there and also um, explaining what's going to go on. I'm sort of, I hold off saying the word health education because I think it sounds very paternalistic. Um, but we've in our practice, we've recently had some new roles. There's some roles that are being rolled out by the Ministry of Health, the HIP and Health Coast model. So you get this role called a health improvement practitioner who does short term mental health stuff. And you get a health coach who is a community based person and can go out and actually see people and talk to them. Anyway, we've got our health coach recently. She's uh, Mari with Fluent Tereo, really amazing mana in her local region. And she started picking up. She does what she calls scratch the surface with our nurses, people with diabetes who haven't come in for ages and their meds all over the place, people who aren't getting immunized. And she said to me, bless her, cotton socks, she said, yep, I had a look at that guy. He's in his 30s. He's really on the wrong trajectory. She says, this is not going to go well. She said, so I called his mother. I'm Ryan. She said, and I said to his mother, this is not going to go well. We're talking losing legs here. We're talking massively dependent by the time he's 40. You need to go and get that guy. And even if you 
tell him you're just going to the shops? You need to bring him to the GP. <laughs> I said to her, honestly, I could never have done that myself. I would have pussyfooted around it. But she was just in there. <laughs> and she's right. And she's passionate. Right. Yeah, I yep. know. And yep. passionate. Yep. And passionate. Like yep. I've always, I've always thought, okay, we'll give people a financial incentive. Mm-hmm. You know, you have your hemoglobin A1C. I don't even know what a PHO pays per patient per year, but you know, okay, let's give that money to the people. If they keep their hemoglobin A1C at a certain level, they keep their waist circumference to a certain level. They keep their BMI to a certain level. Okay. Not maybe BMI, but body fat, you know, that they keep those parameters under control. Okay. You get those numbers to a certain level, then you get paid at the end of the year, this amount of money, and then they can use that money for good food, you know, like financial incentive. Yep. 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 So we do do that. Because the reason, the reason I say that is because if we continue on this trajectory, then healthcare New Zealand will be bankrupt financially so, because of know, the healthcare system. I, um, they, yeah, they, I mean, there's many points in that. Mostly the capitation is a really old fashioned system. There is some understanding and we've just recently got a smoking cessation um, contract with our PHO that offers the patient um, a sign-up $50 and a quit $50. So if they successfully quit and they do a CO2 reading, there is an incentive. And Mm. that does help. But I would say it's kind of drop in the ocean stuff, really. You know, if you look at the really underlying reasons, and if I think of some of the patients we have, I mean, they've got multiple comorbidities and they're on a string of meds like this. And they're 30 or, you know, like, it's like, oh, how did you get here? So it's pretty bad. I know. Um, you know, so I think that's awful for them. But coming to the cost of it, I the health economics in the UK when we did, there was some work around developing what they called an out-of-hospital model in terms mm-hmm. of health system. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of um, work done with a, a reablement model, which is like a recovery multidisciplinary model and some admission avoidance pieces of work. And there was longitudinal studies at the time. And it's not a big surprise for you and I to hear that where they offered, it was older people, no holes barred rehab for a six-week period. So they didn't cap it. They just said, whatever you need, we're going to help you to get independent. 80% of those people got independent and back to where they were before they went to hospital. Calling all women. Are you feeling depressed, lack of energy, anxious, your thinking is foggy, poor sleep? or maybe even hopeless, you know there is a better you to present to this world. Hey, it's me, Dr. Isabel. And wow, if any of this sounds like you, I get you. I have been in this place and I've overcome those negative feelings. That's why I've created the free and private Facebook group called The Bossy Brain Solution. Yeah. Would you like weekly coaching to help you become your best self? Come and see for yourself and be empowered by the other women who want to shine their best light in this world. The link is in the podcast description, or you could search for The Bossy Brain Solution in Facebook groups. It's private and free. So come and join us today and know that there is hope. 
And I encourage you to remain unstoppable. And now back to the podcast. So it's blindingly obvious that that is cheaper than putting all those people into residential homes for the rest of their lives. Blindingly obvious. The business case stacks up enormously. And what I find so amazing is that the New Zealand government does not seem to understand that at all. It does not. Even even this week's New Zealand doctor, they say it right in the editorial, what the fuck is going on? They don't get it. Did they really say that? They they didn't actually say that. But but pretty much, you know, the Ministry of Health doesn't seem to understand that primary care is a significant component of prevention. Mm. Of course. I know. know, And I'm just, you know, kind of, I remember, I don't know if this is the... the, uh, the absolute figure, but I know that having somebody on dialysis per year is $70,000. Oh my gosh. Take $35,000, you know, of that money and use it on people, the family. Housing. Yeah. Housing. Insulation, you know. Well, no, but I'm talking about eating because eating is, eating is what causes, eating is, eating causes diabetes. I mean, yeah, it's our genetics, but we don't have to express our genetics. We, epigenetics teaches us that we don't have to express our genes. And I'm not talking about blue genes. I'm talking about the genes in our DNA. Why not use that money to, for the family? Because if you teach one person in the family that's got type two diabetes, how to reverse it, then guess what? That person that's right. yeah, will yeah. be paying, will be buying food for the family mm-hmm. and they'll go on a journey to learn how to take care of it. And they're getting paid for it mm-hmm. because if not, then we're not going to be able to take care of, well, New Zealand won't be able to take care of the financial stress that's coming within the next decade. And doctors, yeah. GPs, GPs are not becoming GPs. It's too much. They're, to be a GP is really not to be a GP. You're also an internal medicine doctor. You're a cardiologist. You're a nephrologist. You're a gatekeeper. You're a, you know, you're a, psych- you're a psychiatrist. Yeah. There's so much. And the remuneration is nothing compared to what all the other specialists are getting. And it's just so unfair. It's ugly. And we got to do something fast because it's crashing I mean, I could not agree more. <laughs> I see it in front of me every day. I know um, you do. I you know, know you do. Because we have a lovely registrar who's been working in our practice for six months. Really fabulous doctor, beautiful with, you know, come on in, just really cheerful, lovely together. And he said to me, you know what all the registrars are saying? And I said, what's that? He said, the secondary care doctors have no idea how hard primary care is. They do not have a bloody clue. It is so hard. We had no idea. I was like, yep. What can you say? (laughs) Yeah, it is. So I think, um, you know, what we're talking about is it's too hard a job, actually. Even if you pay somebody what secondary care specialists are being paid, it's still too hard. And it's too hard maybe because of the way it's set up to sit in a little room and do 15-minute consultations of all the kind of things you just talked about and not have much you can do other than diagnose and prescribe or refer to a secondary care system that doesn't have much space. Right, right, I know. It's very hard, you know. 
Well, I have a solution. Good, go. <laughs> so the solution is start teaching doctors in medicine, in medical schools. And now um, how to do functional medicine, which is getting to the root cause of people's illnesses and for them to understand it, because we're not taught this in medical training, is for them to understand what causes um, high cholesterol mm. instead of, oh, this is the pill you give mm-hmm. for high mm-hmm. cholesterol. Mm-hmm. Just take care of it at the root level so that the weed doesn't come up. Learning and teaching the doctors how to do that really will empower the doctors because doctors now are just like, what's the point? Here's a drug. And then when patients don't take their drugs, the doctors get upset. We get frustrated because that's the only thing we've got in our back pocket. Um, So I think that that would be step number one is, is develop time so that doctors can learn functional medicine, integrative medicine, and, and learn the best of both worlds. So I completely agree. And what I, there's, for me, there's an interpretation of that ethos, right? Because you said, you said functional medicine and you also said integrative medicine. And the integrative part um, in our practice and the future New Zealand health system aspirations certainly are um, an integrated set of care providers who have some specialist skills like dietitian, life coach, counselor. Um, navigator of complex, let's say, um, quite often older people when they need some occupational, um, you know, equipment aids and or some home care. It's very, very difficult to get. It shouldn't be difficult. It should be easy to get. But right now it's really difficult to get. So where I'm going is we we have a number of different roles who work with the GP and our GPs know and understand. We also have a pharmacist in-house, you know, know and understand those people really well. Mm-hmm. And our model is set up that, they can easily refer to Ali, our health coach, or to, you know, our pharmacist if there's something complex there, maybe to also work with the patient as to how to make this easiest for them, how to set things up in a way that they can be on top of what's going on for them. Uh-huh. It's integrative medicine with more than one person doing it, I guess, you know. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And I know in America, I used, I, I couldn't practice medicine if I didn't have my physician assistants. And right, exactly. I think that, yeah, that yeah, so yeah. needs to be incorporated here in New Zealand. You know, and, it, and it is, you know, slowly it's happening. We have to. <laughs> that's right. It is slow, but there, it, that that's the direction of travel. And then that brings you together from where you are now and where the GP is now into this place where there's a, huge growing role particularly for nurses around diabetes management cardiovascular you know exercise and etc which is and they tend to have more time or it should be designed such that they have more time and sometimes are maybe the better workforce to make that kind of heart connection Mm, absolutely because that's kind of what it needs you know not not just treadmill cookie cutter medicine yeah, heart, so important. People, so, can, people can pick up right away without you even saying anything, whether you love them or you don't love them, whether you care about them or whether you don't care about them. And I, doctors are so run off their feet, you know, that they just don't have time to be asking questions. They can just listen to a couple of things and then go, boom, okay, this is what you need because we're taught to fix 
right? Mm-hmm. We're taught to fix in 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I like I like your your practice, what you've got there, that you've got such a multidisciplinary group of people. I, I feel that that would be a big advantage for more practices in New Zealand. And just teaching people, what do you think about just teaching people that, uh, hey, anybody that wants to learn how to come off their medications, then this is this is the doctor you want to be working with, or this is the group of of, patient, of health coaches you want to be working yeah, with. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. we're not all the way there yet, but that's exactly right. We would love to do that. And I think there's some of this is about um, meeting the challenges of the resistors. You know, in any practice, you'll have a range of real old people have become from, you know, they studied a long time ago and they practice in a more old-fashioned way. And then as we bring in our locums from overseas, particularly from the UK, they're all up for it. Absolutely. Let me work with this nurse. Let me do that, you know, proactive care there. Let's do this over here. So um, it's the same old change stuff, isn't it? It's working with the willing, showing and, and demonstrating why that's good. Yeah. More and more patients going, wow, that's great. Um, for them, their experience of the practice isn't just the GP, it's all the people the right. receptionist who knows them and the yeah, nurse yeah. who's been there for five years and heart, you know, yeah, heart. Yeah, people yeah. love people get people get healed the moment they start walking into the practice with with heart, you know, with I'm cared for here. This is a safe place. But there is a thing we haven't talked about, and it's your subject. You're you're, um, you're a subject matter expert at this more than I am. But another part of future. Uh, medicine or where the wellness, it, it, the wellness support that you can get from the amazing people out there like you and others Thank is you. also having it um, virtually. Mm-hmm. So for like in Northland, it's difficult for us to attract doctors. And some of the issues are there's not that many schools for their kids. It's far away. It's very rural. So why the hell? Why can't we just offer a completely seamless experience online? It's, it's 100% doable you can you can feel love over the bloody internet (laughs) it's possible (laughs) yes well that's in its infancy isn't it you know I've been doing it for the last six years and it's the only way I practice medicine now is telemedicine and I'm I mean COVID has actually broken down the wall so that so so that the medical system sees it as an advantage like wow I can take care of anybody they don't have to come to me they don't have to spend money and time to leave their work. They can yeah, see me, right. you know, on yeah. their lunch hour stuff. So, yeah, like you like you said, you know, people that uh, are ahead of their times usually have swords in their back. <laughs> but I don't care. I'm just doing what I know is right because the world needs to be healed. And I've been thinking about this ever since 1985 when I went into pre-meadows. I mean, in medical training, I was like pre-med yeah just going no we got to change something this is just not right so and we and it's really not right now no and there is also we haven't really talked um at all about but on a personal note I use homeopathy and have done for 25 years oh yeah uh, you know and um for me if I have something small going on right now I've just got a little skin thing going on I know that's my body telling me something and that's what I would work with with my homeopath in a holistic way probably partly stressed and you know rather than give me some steroid creams which is probably what a GP would do so I'm like yeah yeah. going down that road yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. And also skin. Like I always like to first go into the brain health. Well, who's getting under your skin? You know, just 
who's bothering you that it's coming exactly. out into your skin. Yeah. And then also yeah. gut health. I mean, your gut is so important. It just, it just talks through your skin. So those would be the two areas. I know you didn't ask, but if you did, that's what I would say. <laughs> I was going to say, well, thank you, doctor. <laughs> that's very good. It's, um, I'm grateful for your skilled advice. And um, funnily enough, because I did see a GP and I had done a bit of my own doctor Googling and I went to see this GP and I said, oh, my theory is this, this and this. And I said, and because I'd had to take an antibiotic, I, what happened? Um, I don't mind sharing this because it's not particularly it's it's a funny story almost we got a hot tub a cedar wood hot tub at christmas time mm. which doesn't have a filtration system and i we were stupid we didn't clean the water we were naive and i got a pseudomonas infection a skin infection hot tub folliculitis wow and so, i know and i had to take an antibiotic i hadn't taken one for 10 years and quite a hard hitting one and so i you know i took this antibiotic and then my skin was so sensitive it just started you know not coping really um so uh where i'm going with this is that there's some science there but as you say i think there's also some emotion um involved and when i was dr googling i saw the connection between gut health and skin it you know if you look hot enough that said oh yeah there's been recent research and i actually said that to my gp when i went i said oh i think i'll take a probiotic because i've taken an antibiotic and i think this is related to gut health and the gp just looked at me they were just like <laughs> yeah they were not trained in that you know that's not something you learn in in medical school yeah and i think yeah. there's still lots that's not understood isn't there you know about the gut and even things like the vagus nerve and that sort of stuff so much so much take care of your gut and it will take good care of you well bell i'm gonna go ahead and land this plane <laughs> Okay. An, another, <laughs> an, a, another metaphor could be we're going to go ahead and dock this ship. That sounds fantastic. <laughs> I love that one. <laughs> I've been working on my metaphors. One time I remember I said, okay, we're going to dock this plane. And I was like, that's the wrong metaphor. <laughs> so well, that's just how go, I do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, before we go, I just, I would love for you to share with our listeners the project that you're working on right now. So do you mean art project or change jam project wise? Change jam. Change jam. Yeah. Hi. Yeah. Yes, of course. So for those who don't know, change jam is a podcast and um, you can just Google change jam. You can also Google www.changejam.co.nz. We have a website and you can subscribe there. And change jam is really um, a chat between two awesome women just like you and me <laughs> and sharing our wisdom so we've uh, joe henson who's my podcast partner and i have been delivering on change projects mainly in the health and social care space for about 25 years so it's how to start change how to do a vision how to deal with resistance how to corral people along how to stay uh, true to what you're trying to do um being cheerful is our next one coming up actually we've we've we're just agreeing some new subjects and why for example being cheerful generally helps us helps us mentally helps our teams so that's what our next subject will be about um and i um, love it responding to people yeah 
So www.changedam.co.nz is the place to see it and subscribe. And also um, really nice to, you know, talk to your listeners and find out more about your podcast. Um, and I have been listening. It's teaching me some stuff. So great, you know, great. And uh, just so all the listeners know, we will have the, the link the links, in, in, yeah, in the yeah. show notes on this. Exactly. Okay. So don't all worry. Right. You don't have to remem- memorize that. Okay. All right, Mel. We'll stay warm. Spring is coming. In about a month and a half. I can't wait. All right. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. And remain unstoppable, okay? (laughs) I will do. Such a pleasure. Nice to talk to you. All right. Hello, Chef Michael here. If you enjoyed today's episode, we would love it if you subscribed to the podcast and left us a review.